This is Lee Cure, a podcast for conversations from the heart of the continent on Indigenous languages, music, culture, and art in the Age of Reconciliation. Thank you, merci, and miigwech for listening. Anin Boju Tansi. I am Brina Link, the communications assistant for Lee Cure Heart of the North. And hello, I'm Hannah Connolly, the production assistant. To give some context to this podcast, Lee Cure, Riel's Heart of the North is a dramatic musical written by Métis poet and librettist Dr. Suzanne Steele and composer Neil Weisensel. The words Lee Cure mean the heart in the Métis language of Michif. Dr. Steele is writing the text of Lee Cure in the indigenous language of Anishinaabe Moin, which is the language of the Soto and Ojibwe people, and three dialects of the Michifs, as well as French and English, with a lot of help from our indigenous translators. Deborah Beach Ducharme, Donna Beach, Dr. Agath Chartrand, Joyce Dumont, Dr. Lorraine Coutou Lavallee, Suzanne Zeka, Dr. June Bruce, Jules Chartrand, and Verna de Montenay. The work explores the love and lives of Louis Riel's pre-resistance life, the Métis and kin at the heart of an 1870s continent on fire with change. This production honors the enduring strength of our women. Hello everyone, thank you for tuning in today. We are very excited to be launching our first ever podcast episode here at Lee Cure, Riel's Heart of the North. In creating this podcast, we are hoping to make space to explore the experiences of Indigenous and Métis creatives during this age of reconciliation. Today, we are very excited to have Dr. Suzanne M. Steele as our first guest. She is the co-director of the Leak Here production, bringing her myriad of gifts and talents to this team. Dr. Steele is an award-winning poet, installation artist, librettist, and scholar. She is Métis from the Goudry and Fayant families with roots that extend back to the first families, French and Anishinaabe. She has a Master of Library and Information Science from the University of Western Ontario, a PhD from the University of Exeter in the UK, and a Bachelor of Music degree in voice from the University of British Columbia. Dr. Steele was recently made an Honorary Senior Research Fellow at the University of Exeter, UK. Dr. Steele's current research is in the aesthetic translation of Indigenous languages, which is a large part of the Leakier production. In today's conversation with Dr. Steele, we discuss her creative process, the importance of relationships in storytelling, and enjoy some excerpts of her work in Riel's Heart of the North. And without further ado, here is Dr. Suzanne Steele. Dr. Steele, we are very curious to know where you are working from today. Uh, I'm sitting on a porch um, in an lo- old log house on an old lo- log house on a sheep farm on a little island in the North Pacific. And I don't have Wi-Fi, so I apologize to your listeners if this isn't a great quality sound. Sounds good to us. So, can you tell us a little about the a little bit about the research that went into Lee Cure specifically in regarding to your travels across Canada and the United States? Okay, well, in 2017, I took my little trailer and uh, my best beloved, who is a guitar player, and and, uh, my daughter, who is a traditional Métis fiddler, and we traveled from British Columbia to the heartland of the continent, and there uh, we went to a fiddle fest at John Arcon's and then um, met up with my daughter's boyfriend, who flew in from England. He's a naturalist. 
And we then went down into Montana. We spent a lot of time in Montana uh, on the Missouri River. We went to where Louis Riel uh, had taught at St. Peter's Monastery. We went down to uh, the Dakotas, South Dakota, North Dakota. We went to Wyoming and then returned up into uh, across the medicine line, which is what the border is known as, um, up to northern Manitoba and northern Saskatchewan and then home again. It was a 10,000 kilometers. Most of the time we were off grid. So that, what that means is that we didn't have electricity. We didn't have running water. We tried to stay as quiet as possible so that I could imagine what it was like in the 1870s. And uh, yeah, and then the only quiet, uh, the only thing that wasn't quiet was my daughter playing the fiddle and Jeff Hilbury playing the uh, guitar. So that's, yeah. And we, oh, and we, at one point, we even floated down the Missouri River, which was really an awesome experience. Oh, wow. That sounds pretty incredible. Could you elaborate a little bit more about finding Louis Riel's diary? Okay. Yeah, I know. That's really interesting. <clears throat> Excuse me. I, I've got allergies today. Um, so when I set out to write this new opera on Louis Riel, you know, you could, you could write probably a thousand operas uh, on any aspect of his life. But I really wanted to try something different, look for something different. And I also knew I wanted to, to talk about the women and how important the women, our women, First Nations, Indigenous women, Métis women, have been to the center of this continent for hundreds and thousands of years. And I wanted to look at the relationship between Riel and how, you know, his sister and his mother and all of that. So I knew in North Dakota, I had heard about a diary. Um, a professor, um, Heather Devine, had, had written about a diary she had found in 2002 in North Dakota archives. So I thought, well, my daughter and I went to the archives and we went through 700 pages of diary in just a few hours. Let me tell you, that was like crazy. Um, and I was looking to see about about this guy named Robido, who Heather Devine and some other scholars believe is Louis Riel. It's a diary written by uh, an Englishman. Nobody knows who he is. It was found in the attic of, of a, a, a deserted building. Anyway, so I started reading it, and yeah, sure, it sure looks like it's real in this, but at the heart of the diary was a beautiful woman named Josette, and another young woman named Marie. And so Josette, clearly, the Englishman who was writing the diary was in love with her, but he's jealous. This is real. This is real, this diary. In the diary, he's jealous of this guy named Baptiste Robido, who is the alias for Louis Riel, some scholars think. And I went, wow, okay, there's a love triangle, and that's going to be at the center of this opera. So we just downloaded it as best we could, and then I went went home and, and uh, went to an artist's retreat, and I went through it and combed through it for details, which can be found in the opera. Now, the way I've set up the, the story in the opera, though, is the question is going to be at the end, you know, was that or was that not Louis Riel? Josette was definitely a, a real person. And she knew this person from back in St. Boniface, this young woman. She was a great sharpshooter. She was very skilled. Both the women were very, very skilled. They babysat the Englishman uh, when Riel and his friend Laroche or should I say Robido and Laroche used to go back and forth across the medicine line doing 
business, in quotes, politics. So there you go. That's a long-winded answer, but there you go. So interesting. So had you heard of this diary before you went on this trip, or was it kind of one of the discoveries? Yeah. No, no, I had heard of it uh, briefly, very briefly on the radio many years before. And then I started to research it. You know, they said, oh, it's his missing years. And then, of course, scholars, being scholars, and I'm a scholar, they like to argue with each other. So some are saying, no, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. But the reality, no pun intended, (laughs) is that um, I don't care because I'm an artist and this is gold. For an artist, this is gold. The thing people don't understand and the challenges of this Louis Riel opera or this opera about an aspect of Louis Riel's life is that I'm an artist. I'm not a historian here. And this is a this is a golden kind of a thing to reimagine. Having said that, everything in the opera has some basis in historical record. Is there a figure who has personally inspired you in your work for this production? Who's inspired me for this production? Well, all the women in my life, my mother, my grandmother, um, I have my ancestry back to uh, uh, 15th, 16th century France and New, New France and my Anishinaabe ancestors. They inspire me constantly. Um, in the story, um, we have Marie Serpent. Well, Serpent is one of my family names, uh, Anishinaabe names. Um, and so uh, the, one of the wonderful things about being an artist and not a historian, is that I can I get to put all my family names in this opera. So Josephine Marie is the is the narrator. That's my daughter's name, Ella Josephine Marie. Josephine Marie was my grandmother. Uh, you know the Serpent, Josette. All of those are my family names. Marie Serpent in this story is an Anishinaabe knowledge keeper of medicine, and. I took inspiration for her from Rose Richardson, who is one of our elders and one of our great, great knowledge keepers of traditional medicine. She's from Green Lake. And I had, I've had the great good fortune to meet her and, you know, spend some time with her and be in correspondence with her. So she's definitely one of the ones that inspired me. Uh, Josette, the young, uh, the young Machif woman, the young Métis woman, is inspired by all of you young women because she's struggling with, you know, who am I in this very, you know, masculine, male-dominated world, especially of the 1870s. But you know what? Things haven't changed that much. Here we have this incredibly, and both Marie Serpent and, and Josette are well-educated by the Grey Nuns at Saint Boniface. And this is true in real life, but also that's very common. Um, so they could speak several languages. Here you have these brilliant young women. Josette is actually a sharpshooter, and that's very common for our women to have been excellent, excellent hunters and trappers and sharpshooters. And yet here she's, you know, at one point, and I don't want to spo- uh, spoil the story maybe, but, you know, she's being pressured to marry and to become some old man's wife. And First of all, that could all, you know, in many ways, not only would that stifle an adventurous and talented young woman, but it also, she could die because people died in childbirth quite frequently, you know. So the the tension of marrying for convenience, marrying for kinship ties or marrying for love or not marrying. And that's also a big, 
uh, a big theme that I look at. So there you go. That's another long-winded answer. <laughs> that was awesome. Thank you so much. So interesting to hear about, yeah, like the real-life connections um, that come through the story. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, it's it. Oh, sorry, but you, I, you know, Hannah, it's quite interesting because I think when an artist does their job well, they get the heck out of the way, and someone tells them the story. And I think that these young women told me the story when I read that diary, you know, and that my, you know, that my great grandmothers are telling me the story, and that my daughter is telling me the story. So, you know, so the connection is very real. And that's, that's a rather an indigenous point of view as well, that they are with us still. You know, they're not just on paper. So that's a really interesting comment you made. That's beautiful. Recently, you and Neil Weisensell were awarded the 2020 Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council Connection Award. Can you tell us a little bit about what work is being done under that grant? Oh boy, that it, uh, that shirt grant was amazing. Uh, it's very difficult to get a shirt grant, and so I feel very honored. Um, and I think you probably want to talk to Neil a little bit more about the, it's a connections grant, um, but you can also interview Neil about it. What we're doing, because I'm writing this work in six languages, three indigenous languages, French, English, and there's a bit of Latin in there. Um, I'm working closely with translators um, from uh, the uh, Southern or traditional Machif, uh, the Saint Laurent Machif, French Machif, um, and the Anishinaabe Moen, uh, also known as, to some people as Ojibwe or Soto. Um, so because these languages are fragile, some of, some of them, if not all, uh, I thought it was really important that, for, that we offer for scholars and for the communities and for the general public a chance to actually see our process and hear, hear the language. And, and so what we're doing is we're setting up a database using Omica and, and with the able and wonderful help of you two, young research assistants, I tell you, we couldn't do anything without you right now. Um, we're setting up a, a database that is going to be, you know, really of uh, value to linguists, but also to community members as well. So that entails recording our translators, but also transcribing, doing videos, organizing it, and presenting it in a way so that a scholar in, say, 30 years from now could come back and look at this project. What is different with this project is what it's what I call aesthetic translation. It's the aesthetic translation of Indigenous languages. Translation is very often literal translation. But that you don't understand a language if you if you just do literal translations. So what we're looking at, what we're going to look at, is how our translators look at this, uh, look at my words. My word, my text is being used as as a, a foundation. What I'm asking um, the the translators to do, and, and what we'll be examining is how does a translator get around this concept especially because I'm poet, a poet and I write a poetic concept. You know, so for example, there's an aria called the Mending the Violence of Men aria. And Marie Serpent is called in to literally sew together 
some men, men's wounds. They have got in a boxing match. They got too violent. And so she's called in to heal, to, to, to mend them, mend their, to sew their skin together to, and to repair them. And she, so the, my words were, my original words were, what strange, so Marie asks, what strange mending is this of the violence of men? So that's quite a complex concept. So how the Anishinaabemowin uh, translators, Deborah and Donna Beach and Ducharme, um, sorry, it should be the other way, uh, Deborah du, uh, Ducharme and, and Donna Beach, um, how they approached it was they, they said, if you look at their Anishinaabemowin, they go, um, how strange is it that I sew a man's skin just like I sew a dress? So that was really interesting. So that to me is a really insightful, you know, how that they would they would use an object like a dress rather than do a literal translation. So yeah. Anyways, that that gives us a little a, a little insight into so scholars in the future can say, oh well, how interesting that they chose to do this, this, and this. Hmm. Yeah, that is so interesting. I've, I'm finding, even though I have very little experience with translation, it's, it's really, it really comes down to all the little things that seem insignificant, but that's what makes a language. Well, that's right. But it's also really important that the indigenous languages are poetic in the indigenous languages. Do you know what I'm saying? So, for example, you know, you don't want it to be too prosaic, too, too plain. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. you want to, in, you want to hear the, like the Anishinaabemowin is just so beautiful with all the vowels, right? And, and so, you know, this is the first step towards developing that, yeah, that conversation between the, the, the languages, I guess, is what I'm saying. And that's really what this is. And I believe that actually by doing this, that it is a form of reconciliation. I absolutely agree with you. Coming from an OG Cree background, seeing like the rhythmic and the language that we're doing is quite incredible to me. And it is absolutely a form of reconciliation. Well, I'll tell you something, um, young women. Um, when we had a preview in Saskatoon, and uh, sorry, excuse me, Regina. And Regina is where they hanged Louis Riel. And, uh, you know, when we, I came out on stage several times that, you know, to explain different things. And, and then at the end, you know, there was a question and answer. And I said, you know what? I said, finally, this at the heart of the continent, you're hearing the languages that have been here all along. And I said, listen to how beautiful they are. And what, a, you know, this is amazing. You know, in this big concert hall, we've heard French and English and German and Russian, beautiful languages, Italian, Chinese, you name it. I said, but now with this work that I'm writing, you get a chance to hear some of the beautiful languages that were once the lingua franca used by everybody 150 years ago, 200 years ago, a thousand years ago in the Anishinaabemowin. And what, so in a way, it's a time travel in a way but it's also a bridge towards each other. That's beautiful. Speaking about your Regina performance, James Westman, your <laughs> Regina baritone performer, mentioned that the ebb and flow of her libretto perfectly integrated the human soul to impressionistic imagery. We were wondering how you came to shape your libretto in such a way. 
Oh, that's that's such a good question, and that's quite a difficult question. I'm a singer, first and foremost. I'm trained. I have an undergraduate degree in voice, but I'm also a poet. But I think, you know, I think there's, uh, um, I'm a landscape, I'm very land-based. So I guess that's my Indigenous, you know, uh, side to my work. I, I have to feel the land. I have to, I have to hear the land. And so I think with my libretto, how did I shape it? So I keep coming back to the land and I keep listening and I listen and I listen. And again, that's a fundamental of truth and reconciliation is to listen, right? To be still and listen. So I think that's the best answer I can give you because it's not magic, but it is, it's spiritual, So it's very spiritual to write a libretto. And I have to get out of the way, the ego of me. So, um, and I think I do that best when, when I listen. And I listen deeply to what, to the story that has to be said. At note, will you be willing to read us a passage from the opera? Okay, yes, I will. Uh, You know, well, you see, I had a really difficult time. You know, I thought, should I, should I do Baptize Me in My Galilee? Or should I do The Violence of Men, Mending the Violence of Men? I think I'm going to do, um, I'm going to do Baptize Me in My Galilee. Um, and then I'm going to do um, The Englishman's Fake uh, Tennyson. First of all, I have to say, a libretto is not poetry. So that's a very, a poem is a very different thing. However, because I'm a poet, my libretti are poetic. They're filled with little poetic images or words or whatever. So I just needed to to clarify that. So I'm going to read from the aria that James uh, Westman sings so beautifully. And it's when the Louis Riel figure goes down to Montana. He's in exile. He's been chased down. After he was the uh, head of the provisional government, he had to leave in a real hurry because the assassins were out to get him. So he goes down to Montana, and he's uh, he's in the Missouri River. He's by the Missouri River, and he decides he's gonna. He he goes and he stands in the river, and he has this moment, this calling, you know, that he feels like he is called to do something great to lead his people. So I'm going to actually read it to you in uh, French. And English. Baptize me in my Galilee. Baptisez-moi dans ma Galilée, pays du Grand Missouri, au point pelican où grâce de Dieu, l'Esprit de Dieu vole sur chevron des hirondelles where night jars winnow the stars. Mes sœurs, mes frères, venez, share the feast of our land, le sacrement du sang. Christ is on wing. Baptise-moi dans ma Galilée, pays du Grand Missouri. Allumez le sacré cœur de tabac and sweetgrass, la vie de gens libres, oh, baptise me in my Galilee, the land of the great Missouri. 
So he says, you know, baptize me in my Galilee, land of the great Missouri, at, at Pelican Point. That's a, a beautiful place on the Missouri River. Where, where, where the grace of God, the spirit of God flies on the chevrons of, of swallows, the chevrons, uh, where night jars, winnow, night jars are birds, winnow the stars. My sisters, my brothers, come share the feast of our land, the sacrament of blood. Christ is on wing. Baptize me in my Galilee, land of the great Missouri. Light the sacred heart of tobacco and sweetgrass, the, the life of the free people, les gens libres. Oh, baptize me in my Galilee, the land of the great Missouri. So he feels a calling, you know, a great calling. And, you know, at one point, you know, uh, he, was, he was claimed to be a prophet. So that's, that's from that. Okay, then. The next one I want to read, and I'll, I'll read quite quickly. But at one point, the Englishman of the, of, um, that we, I spoke of in the diary, and he's a character in this, well, he's desperately in love with this uh, La Belle Métisse, uh, Josette. And he's very jealous of Robido, a.k.a. Louis Rial. And anyway, they're, 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 they're camping near um, a couple of Buffalo Brigades. Um, they're trying to, they're taking him to uh, a buffalo hunt. He wants, he's a wealthy Englishman and they're taking him to a buffalo hunt. By the way, all of this is in the diary. <clears throat> so this is the, this is the directions. The Englishman is writing in his diary while behind him, Robido and LaRoche are setting up camp. In the background, the buffalo brigades are setting up for a boxing match. Josette and Marie sneak away and hide behind some bushes where they can listen to the Englishman talking to himself. So, the Englishman, ah, la belle Josette, morning, noon, and night, Josette whispering, see, Marie, I told you, he gives me the creeps, Marie, shh, Englishman, three months with her and all I have are a dozen buffalo hides and a single poem, Josette, oh no, he's going to read it, Marie, shh, Englishman, he sits back, looks satisfied, clears his throat and begins to recite, <clears throat> Now sleeps the half-crimson maiden, half-white. Josette, whispering, looks at Marie. Wait a minute. Marie, shh, for heaven's sakes. Englishman, now sleeps the half-crimson maid, half-white. Envy I sparkling trade beads that grace thy throat. Scarlet blanket, beaded belt, O woman, a queen. Huntress, bannock maker, thou awakens me. Josette, oh no. Marie, yes, it's about you now. Be quiet. Englishman, now droops my last season. The memory ghost now glimmers forth such river-wide desire in me. Now lies last echoes of our great bison hunt that thy heart maiden would flower for me. Josette, ugh, wilt more like it. Marie, and technically, shouldn't that be echo instead of echoes, plural? Chaussette and Marie, the verb should agree with the subject, ergo echo, eighth grade English grammar class of Exer Francis Delphine. Englishman, now slide Perseids cross northern skies, furrowed my brow be, what thinkst thou of me? Chaussette, she tries to get up, but Marie holds her back. Nothing, nothing, you, you, Anglais, I have nothing for you. Englishman, now folds the sweetness of time's arrow, half-breed girl, dost thou, canst thou not see? I came for adventure, but falling, falling, in love with thee, man possessed, God help me. Chaussette, 
Dreadful. Just dreadful. Marie. Third-rate fake Tennyson. Marie and Josette. Tenth grade. English literature avec Sir Marie Rose à l'école des Sœurs Grises à Saint-Boniface. Oh, that Englishman can't write. Bravo. <laughs> that was actually so funny. Go. I loved it. <laughs> it was. That was so awesome. I can't wait to see it in person. Well, uh, yeah, well, you know, the thing is, is that, uh, oh, so anyway, I took a Tennyson poem and wrote that. You know, I wanted to model it after Tennyson, who would be very popular during this period of time. So I took took uh, one of his poems and, and, you know, kind of ripped off a little a little bit of it and, and worked on it. So I showed it to my daughter's uh, partner, who's a scholar at Oxford. And, and, and he said, it's a bit too well written for a for a bad poem. He said, your mom's too good <laughs> of a poet. <laughs> I said, oh, darn. But I actually took it. Yeah. <laughs> In a previous interview, you spoke on how putting relationships first was a principle that you find extremely important in your work. And you kind of spoke a little bit about this when it came to um, your relationship with the land and as an artist, allowing other people to tell, tell you the story. But do you want to elaborate a bit more on what that principle means for you, especially as an artist? Well, I'm a collaborative artist first and foremost, and it doesn't matter what I do. Um, you know, I mean, I do I do pieces by myself. I do video installations and things like that. But ultimately, I, I depend and I want to work with other artists. Um, I think this is one of the biggest challenges in our time of truth and reconciliation. Uh, I think a non-Indigenous worldview is, is a, one of efficiency and checking off boxes and you know, so I'll, so there's a lot of frustration. Well, we've been in the truth and reconciliation uh, process for, you know, five, six years now, I think. Why isn't everything better all fixed, right? Or, you know, if we get, if we get fresh water on, on all the reserves that don't have water or all the First Nations that don't have fresh water, well, that's going to be reconciliation, right? <laughs> you know, do you know, do you understand what I'm trying to get at? But really, reconciliation truth and reconciliation comes and art comes first and foremost relationship comes first right and so as as working with you young women getting to know you is the most important thing so when we do our check-ins I want I want to you know find out how are you you know I have a I, I have a relationship developing with you and then only after we have a relationship is it appropriate to actually get down to, in quotes, business. That does not mean in any way that the Indigenous point of view it does not get down to business. Au contraire. You know, it's very interesting. Rose Richardson, the, the, the knowledge keeper, I remember her uh, posting something, or actually it was her late husband, um, Rick Richardson, uh, much, uh, much missed, much missed who wrote something about, in quotes, Indian time, you know. It's not, you know, when the, it's not, late it's not early it's at the right time so it's when we pick the berries she picks the berries at the right time not too early not too late and i think reconciliation truth and reconciliation operates in the same way and good art you know it's about forming relationship so i don't know if that answers your question or not completely agree with that i really like how you said that indian time is the right time 
because they have a misconception. A lot of people have a misconception about how we work with the land and how we're always late or not on time. But yeah, that was really beautiful what you said. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's that that whole concept of time. And, you know, I also actually look at time in a way in this opera as well. You know, I this this opera takes place in the deep past, the mystic and mythic past that is with us at all times. Then it also takes place in the 1870s, the 1880s, and it also takes place in the 21st century. And we go back and forth throughout my libretto. So time is time is not linear. Time is malleable. And just like relationships are not linear, they're, you know, they are, they, they ebb and flow. And, and they also take work. And they also take a lot of listening. That's true. So like you said previously, this opera really is seeking to highlight the role of Indigenous women and their part in history. And sadly, in so many popular narratives, their names and their stories are missing. And then as well, in our country today, there are many Indigenous women that are physically missing, as shown by the National Inquiry on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. And I'm just wondering if, what, what do you think your role is in fighting for justice as an artist in regards to the disenfranchisement of Indigenous women? What was, is really important to me is that, you know, really the women have been and continue to be, uh, you know, not only the kinship heart, heart of the kinship, kinship webs, but also the economic hub. If you start doing some reading, such as in Sherry Farrell Reset's uh, Sewing Ourselves, her um, uh, PhD thesis, you learn how important women have been to the, literally to the economy. Uh, certainly, um, you know, of, of um, you know, the fur trade era and, and beyond, but, you know, one can obviously say much earlier for, you know, forever, forever. So it's been really important for me to have those women brought back to the center of this work, uh, to the center of this narrative. So, for example, it opens, uh, it opens with women singing that they are sowing the world. You know, they're sowing the universe. Um, I think that it, it is, I see all the time, I've been in museums around the world. I travel a lot. I've traveled a lot in the past. And I see women's work of all kinds, Indigenous and non-Indigenous in museums, and, they, and they've disappeared. Nobody knows the name of these artists, but because they are practical goods, say clothing or shoes or moccasins or, or whatever, they're not considered art. And yet, if you look at it, it is art. My, I have a hashtag saying women's art is art. Um, to me, I think that we need to consider uh, we absolutely need to consider the rightful place of women in our narratives, our narratives of becoming. And so that is that again is one of the goals of of this this opera. So, you know, by giving these women some names, I found the names of these women in the diary. Guess what? I'm using some of the my women's names on stage for different characters. You know, so it's really important to me that that we actually let them speak again and say, hey, I did this. I, I worked hard. I raised those children. My great grandmother had 13 children. 
you know? She spoke five languages. She, you know, we, we need to hear their stories. And so that's another one of my goals as well. But ultimately, I just want to, you know, just say, I don't believe in didactic art or pedantic art. You know, I don't tell my, my listeners, my readers what to think. I, I give my, my audience credit for making up their own mind. So I'm not going to be didactic. You know, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to tell you guys what to think. You know, hopefully I get to show the voices of these amazing women and what they have done and how we have come here and where we're moving forward. Because I believe that we are moving forward, especially because of us women. So I'm, I just want to, I just want to end this recording by saying how proud I am of you two for embracing this project, because what you're doing is you're facilitating our wonderful translators to speak to the future. And you'll speak of this project. And I just want to congratulate you and thank you. Well, merci, Dr. Steele, for joining us on our podcast today. Merci. Merci. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye. Wow, Brina. I don't know about you, but for me, that was a really interesting conversation, especially just to see kind of the behind of Dr. Steele's creative process. Was there anything that stuck out to you from the conversation? Absolutely. As an Indigenous woman, to know that she gave the women in the play the strong roles that they already took on in the past and to have a voice for them, not just for the past women, but also for the future generations of Indigenous women. That is so important. Now it's time for a segment we like to call Anishinaabe Moen Phrase of the Day. I hope you all are well. Ambigish Sago Minoa Ya Yeg. Marse, thank you, and McWitch for listening to the Likir podcast today. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and follow us on social media. On Instagram, we are Heart of the North Riel. On Twitter, we are at Louis Riel, H O T N. And on Facebook, our page is called Riel Heart of the North. We hope you have a wonderful day.